Were you ever given a piece of advice that at the time it sounded really important so you took it seriously and yet later on down the road you learned it wasn't true? I mean, at the time it seemed like this valuable piece, valuable piece of wisdom and you thought, I've got to be careful to remember this. And yet, later on you discovered they really didn't know what they were talking about. What they told you was just a myth. For example, I heard this all the time as I was growing up, and because it was adults who were always telling me this, I took it really seriously that, David, you should never go swimming within 30 minutes after eating, or otherwise you'll get a cramp and drown. And because I didn't want to die doing something I really loved to do, I loved to go swimming as a kid, I'd always wait a full hour, full hour after eating a meal before I jump into my friend's swimming pool. And yet today, I've been told that's just a myth. There's really no truth to that piece of advice. Or, I heard this all the time from my friends at school, and not a one of them were teasing or joking when they said this to me. They said, David, don't swallow your chewing gum, because if you do, it'll remain stuck in your stomach for the next seven years. Well, that sounded awful. I mean, I didn't want to have a wad of juicy fruit stuck on the inside of me for years and years to come, so when they said that to me, I took it seriously, meaning that any time I was given a piece of chewing gum after it lost its flavor, I was always careful to spit it out. I, I never swallowed it because I didn't want that stuff stuck inside of me. And yet today I've learned that word of advice that my friends were given to me is just a myth. There's really no truth to it. Or how many times did you hear your Aunt Peggy warn you to go outside with that cold hair or, or that wet hair or you'll catch a cold? And it sounded right at the time, and yet today you've learned that's, that's a myth. There's no truth to that. Well, here's a myth, a lie that I want to expose today. I heard this all the time as a child. I heard it from coaches and teachers and even some of my relatives. And when they said it, they meant well. They were speaking from a good heart because every one of them wanted nothing but the best for me. So all the time as a child, I was challenged and motivated with this piece of advice. David, you can be anything you want to be. I mean anything. Astronaut, rock star, president of the United States. If you'll just believe and if you'll work really hard, there are no limits to all the possibilities of what you can do with your life. Well, that's a lie. That's just not. So think about this. Can an acorn ever become a rose bush? No. It's never going to happen. I mean, that tiny acorn can one day grow and develop into this huge, healthy oak tree, or one day it might end up becoming this very small, stunted, terribly diseased oak tree, depending on what kind of environment it's put in and what kind of care it's giving. But the one thing you're never going to see happen is that acorn becoming a rose bush because the acorn's just not equipped to do that. And what's true for the acorn is true for us. Or think of it like this, you ever had this experience, all the, all the times that you've been in and out of an airport, you know, you're leaving town on a business trip, or you're traveling over the holidays to visit family, and you finally reach your destination, and there you are in the airport, you're standing at the carousel waiting to get your suitcase when suddenly you see it, or you think you see it. It's a suitcase that looks just, you know, same size, same color, same fabric, and because you're in a hurry, you just kind of grab and go, and it's not until you get back to the hotel room that you realize you made a mistake. You picked up the wrong piece of luggage. I mean, you open it up, and none of the stuff on the inside belongs to you. So what do you do? You say, well, I guess I'll just work with what I've got. And you try to squeeze your 38-inch waist into those size 32 pants, and you head out to all your appointments that day wearing a pair of slacks that really don't fit, wearing a pair of slacks that make you look very bad and, and very, very uncomfortable. No, you don't do that. You call the airlines. You hire a taxi. You head back to the airport to find the suitcase, the suitcase that has your name tag on it. Because nobody wants to live out of somebody else's bag. That stuff doesn't fit me. And yet, how many times over the years have other people tried to do that to us, force us to do things their way? Hey, this is what always worked for me, so surely it's going to work for you. And they try to force you into a setting 
into a career, vocation, a job that really doesn't suit, really doesn't fit your talents and skills. You know, the gifts that God packed into your suitcase when he first created you. You know, it's King Saul telling the young man David, before he goes out to fight the giant Goliath, hey, if you're going to be successful in this battle, you need to wear my armor. I mean, that's the way I fight my battles, and you should fight your battles that way too. So take my armor and put it on. And yet the armor didn't fit. Why? Because Saul was a soldier, but David was a shepherd. God did not pack their suitcases the same way. I mean, here's King Saul. He had years and years of experience fighting with that sword, but David, up to that point, had never held a weapon like that before. I mean, it's not to say that David hadn't fought battles in his life. Think about all the bears and lions trying to eat his sheep and how over the years he became pretty handy with that slingshot. Well, that's the weapon that God wanted him to use. I love the way John the Baptist explained this because John the Baptist was all the time being compared to his cousin, Jesus. Hey, why aren't the two of you more alike? I mean, here are two men, Jesus and John the Baptist, who couldn't have been more different in the way they serve God. I mean, here's John the Baptist, a loner out here in the desert, pretty much stuck to one spot and just waited for the people to come to him. And yet Jesus was the very opposite. He was always on the go, moving from town to town, seeking out sinners like Zacchaeus and just inviting himself into his home. Hey, I'm coming to your place for dinner today. Or here's John the Baptist. He stuck to this religious diet where he ate nothing but honey and bugs. I mean, for most of his life, he placed himself under the rigors of a Nazarite vow. And yet Jesus was the very opposite. I mean, compared to John the Baptist, Jesus looked like a party animal. He's showing up at weddings, straining the water into wine. You couldn't have had two men more different in the way they served God. And the crowds were all the time complaining about this. All the time saying, both Jesus and John the Baptist, why aren't the two of you more like John? Why aren't you more like Jesus? And Jesus, why aren't you more like John? And both Jesus and John the Baptist responded to that criticism. But it's, it's John the Baptist, how he responded to it, that I find really intriguing. It's in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and verse 27. John the Baptist, you know, trying to explain why am I not like him? And he says, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. I love that verse. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. Translation, God did not pack my suitcase the same way he packed his. I am not equipped to do what Jesus can do. And what was true for the two of them is also true for all of us. Every year at the end of the year, Time Magazine will compile a list of people they consider to have made the biggest impact in our world in the previous 365 days. And then from that list of influential people, they'll select one to be their person of the year. Well, at the end of 1999, Time Magazine decided to take that one step further. They raised the question, who's been the most influential over the past century? I mean, who made the biggest impact on our 20th century world? And when all the votes were turned in, the person they selected was Albert Einstein. Einstein was their person of the century. And most everybody agreed, wow, he's one of the most brilliant people of all times. So it's no surprise that when Einstein died, people were curious, what was it that made him unique? Why, why did he stand out from all the others? So even though Einstein had in his wishes, hey, when I die, I want to be cremated. But before they performed the cremation, they removed his brain. They cremated the rest of his body, but they hung on to the brain because they wanted to study it. You know, what, what made him smarter than everybody else? So they took his brain and they sliced it up into 240 different pieces. And for a while, they stored it in these two large cookie jars. And then over the next 20 years, all kinds of people from all different parts of the world came to study that brain. What was it that made Einstein unique? Well, Walter Isaacson has written one of the premier biographies on Einstein. He says, you know, there really wasn't anything unique about that brain of his. I mean, if you take an Einstein's brain, 
before they sliced it up. <laughs> and you'd set that brain in a lab, and you take your brain and my brain, put it next to it, they're pretty much the same. There wasn't anything unique about the size or the shape of his brain, but Walter Isaacson said what was unique about Einstein was how he used that brain. And then he tells about this experience when Einstein was five years old, a defining moment in his life. He's five years old, little Albert. He's sick at home one day, and his dad wanting to help out. He brings him a compass to play with. And Einstein said, immediately, that captivated my attention. I mean, I just noticed whichever way I moved that compass, there was some invisible force acting upon the needle and pulling it in a particular direction. And he said, at that moment, at the age of five, I became keenly aware there's something hidden deeply behind things, some mysterious force that causes everything to happen. And he said, I got really curious about that. So later on in life, Einstein would often tell people, says, you know, I'm just an average guy. There's really nothing special about me. I don't have any special talents. But what does distinguish me from everybody else is I've always been curious, passionately curious. In other words, most people will see something and then they just move right on and they don't even give it a second glance. But Einstein said, I'd see something and I have to stop and look and try to figure out what makes this thing work. You see, God did pack something into his suitcase that he didn't put in most others. A curiosity that drove Einstein to, to make discoveries that nobody else even thought about pursuing. So, what does God put in your suitcase? What unique set of relationships and circumstances? What unique set of experiences and memories? What unique set of talents and skills? And over the course of your life, what unique set of opportunities has God provided you to develop those talents and skills that makes your suitcase your life different from mine? Those are the kind of questions I want you to keep in mind as we look at this verse this morning. I'm just going to look at one verse. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, for we are God's handiwork. If you were reading this in the Greek language, you would notice the very first word in the sentence would be the word his, meaning God. Because what's being emphasized here is what God has done for us. Literally, in the Greek, it reads, his work. Are we? In other words, you want to know who you are? You've got to start with God. You've got to start with the one who made you. And that's why this word here, handiwork, is such a key word. In your Bible, it might be translated masterpiece, which is a great translation because that's exactly how that word was used back in the ancient world. One example, here, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus used this word. It's the Greek word poema. And he used this word to describe this highly skilled craftsman who'd been commissioned to make a crown for the king. I mean, he's been called upon to do something special. So realizing this, this, this craftsman realized this requires my greatest effort, my utmost care and concentration. I'm, I'm making a crown for the king. This has got to be the best thing I've ever made. And that's exactly what the Bible's trying to emphasize here. Of all the stuff that God's made, I mean, all the things that he created, the stars, galaxies, the solar system, is as impressive as all that is, yet here's God's masterpiece. His finest work of all, your life and mine, the people he's created. So if you just stop right at that point, you learn this important lesson. Your life is not your project. It's not your handiwork. Your life is God's project. He's the one that thought you up. He's the one that made you meaning. He's the only one who really understands what you were intended to be. He's the only one who truly understands what you with your unique life are capable of doing. So if you want to unpack your suitcase and find out, well, what exactly am I equipped to do? You've got to start with God, not just by yourself, look within and trying to figure this out all by yourself. No. Come back to David, King David. You know, the kid that killed the giant Goliath? 
Remember that day when God, uh, you read about this, 1 Samuel chapter 16. That day when God sent the prophet Samuel to David's house to anoint the next king of Israel. Well, right away, Jesse, David's father, rounds up the seven oldest boys, figuring one of them's got to be the candidate. But the eighth kid, the little one, the runt, David, he leaves him out in the fields. <laughs> no need to bring him in. Samuel's not going to need to see him. Why? He's just a shepherd boy. Nothing more, nothing less. I mean, we got some really high expectations for these older boys, but that little one out there, we're really not expecting much out of David because he's always going to be the last, the least, the most insignificant. He'll always, he's the eighth, he'll always be the one following along behind all the rest. See, Jesse, David's father, never recognized how God had packed his suitcase, what God had actually prepared David to do. Or think about his older brothers, how they were all the time looking down on their kid brother as though he was nothing more than an errand boy. You remember that day when David was on the battlefield and he heard the giant Goliath taunting the army of Israel? Why was David even out there that day? He was out there to deliver food to his older brothers. They were part of the army. And so that's how siblings always kind of saw him, just a butler, a maid, an errand. Hey, go fetch this for me. Even his siblings did not recognize his potential. Or think of the giant Goliath. What was his first impression when he saw David? Man, he was upset. What are you doing sending an amateur out to fight a pro? That's an insult to me. Well, I'm going to feed this kid to the birds. Goliath looked at David and saw him as bird food. Nobody in David's world saw what God saw, not even the prophet Samuel. Remember how God had to pull him aside? Because even Samuel thought, it's one of these seven older boys. That's got to be the next candidate, the next candidate for king. David, no. And God pulls him aside and says, the problem with you, Samuel, and everybody else, you're looking at things the wrong way. You look at the outward appearance, but God says, I'm looking on the inside. I see this kid's heart. I, 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 I understand what he's capable of. I'm the one that packed his suitcase. So if David was to understand his true identity, you know, just who am I? He wasn't going to find the answer to that question by talking to the people around. No, you've got to turn to God. Now, take it one step further. Here's another important piece of information. This next phrase in the verse. Not only are we God's handiwork, his masterpiece. It says, we are created in Christ Jesus. All the way through the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2, the, the Apostle Paul has been emphasizing God's work of salvation and how salvation is God's achievement, not ours. It's something only he could, we, we never could have done this for ourselves. This is something only God can pull off. And so to emphasize that, all the way through the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul uses these images, these stunning images like verse 1 and verse 5, how being saved is like being raised from the dead. You know, dead people can't bring themselves to life again. Only God can do something like that. Or being saved, verses 2 and 3, being saved is like being liberated from slavery, being rescued from condemnation. You've been condemned by the courts. You've been sent to prison. You're now being held captive. You can't set yourself free, but God can. And then you come down to verse 10, this image in verse 10, where to cap it off and put everything just beyond a shadow of a doubt that salvation is something only God can pull off. Now the Apostle Paul takes God's work of salvation. And he says it's on the same level as God's work of creation. And you thought what God did back there in the book of Genesis was, was amazing. You know, out of nothing, he makes some, uh, this entire universe. Out of nothing had ever existed before. And suddenly we got this entire universe astounding. But Paul says that's nothing compared to this. His mightiest work of all is when he brought us out of darkness into light. When he saved us, being saved is like a whole new act of creation. Now, here's why we need to know that. Because from time to time, this suitcase of ours, this, your life and mine, 
it gets damaged. But no matter how damaged it might be, it doesn't keep God from unpacking its potential. Think of Moses, the prince of Egypt. He has been uniquely positioned by God, and yet Moses messes everything up. He breaks the law, he takes a man's life, and he has to flee to the desert for refuge. And at that point, you think, his life's over. Just throw the suitcase away. But that's not how God sees it. God doesn't give up on Moses. He takes Moses, and he makes him again. Or think about Abraham and how he has this calling from God to be a blessing to all nations. What an awesome calling to have upon your life. But then there's this famine in the land, and he panics and kind of throws his faith out the window, and he goes running off to Egypt, a place where he's not supposed to be. And while he's there in Egypt, he just acts like a pagan, like he doesn't even know the Lord at all. And twice, over the course of his life, twice he lies about his wife and puts her life in jeopardy. And at that point, you're looking at Abraham and thinking, nothing good's ever going to come out of this suitcase. Hey, forget about him. But God doesn't. God takes Abraham, and he makes him again. Or... Think about David, how he lost his temper with Nabal and was about to do something terribly foolish, or how he committed adultery with Bathsheba, or the many times he failed to be a good father to his son Absalom. I mean, time and time again, he didn't take care of the suitcase. He wasn't taking care of his life, and yet God never gave up. Again and again, he came to David and made him again. And what God did with them, he can do with us. That, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He says, because of Jesus, no matter how broken or damaged your life might be, God still wants to transform you into, into something new. So think of it like this. Think of an old piece of furniture that's sitting in the back of your uncle's barn. I mean, it's been sitting there for years, gathering dust, covered with cobwebs. Nobody seems to care about it. But you, you've got this eye for antiques, and you recognize its value. So you approach your uncle one day and say, hey, can I work with that? He says, sure, sure, you can have it. Do whatever you want with it. So with a lot of labor and a lot of love, over a long period of time, you restore that old desk. You take that old desk and transform it into its original elegance and beauty. And now something that seemed to be worthless has suddenly become this work of art, this masterpiece that everybody in the community admires. Wow, I love what you did. How did you do that? I love what you did with that desk. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. That's exactly what God would love to be able to do with your life and mine. But how? How does God restore? How does God begin to unpack the suitcase and draw out that potential that he put inside of you and me? I think part of the answer to that question is found here in the last part of this verse. It's your willingness to serve. Your willingness to, to do something good, no matter how small, mundane, or insignificant it may appear to be, it's your willingness to do that that God begins to use to draw out the potential. Notice how it reads. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. See, God always has a future in mind for you. No matter where you are right now, or no matter where you've been, I still intend to do something good through your life. So those good works which God prepared in advance, he prepared us in advance. And as he looks at our tomorrows, he prepares those opportunities to do something good. So he can do something really special through our lives. So come back to David, King David, when he's just a boy and he's out here in the fields watching the sheep and playing on a harp. Can you imagine how boring that must have been? Because here's David out there in the fields all by himself. Nobody, nobody's watching. Nobody's taking notice of this. Nobody seems to care. 
Nobody's applauding anything that he's doing. Out here all by himself watching the sheep, how boring that must have been, strumming on the harp, learning how to play the harp. Man, this is not going to get me anywhere. And yet it's at that very moment, while he's out there all alone as a boy, watching the sheep, playing the harp, that God's beginning to unpack his suitcase and develop his potential. In other words, it was David's willingness to take the harp lessons as a kid that put him in a position one day to be asked to play the harp in King Saul's court. And it was David's willingness over all those years to every day keep practicing the slingshot while he's trying to protect the sheep. It was his willing to keep practicing day after day that developed his skill to the point that one day God asked him to come out into the battlefield, fight the giant Goliath. And it was David's experience during those 10 years when literally his life, he was on the run, running away from the angry King Saul for 10 years, hiding out in caves. Think how awful that season of his life must have been. But it's during that 10-year period of time that God was enlarging David's heart and giving him the emotional capacity to write those psalms, those amazing psalms that we find in our Bibles today, those songs and prayers that still tug in our heartstrings thousands of years See, it's your willingness to serve today, to do something good, no matter how small, insignificant, mundane it may appear to be right. It's your willingness to serve today that God uses to begin to prepare you for something bigger and better tomorrow. Craig Rochelle tells about a day when his uh, wife Amy was involved in an accident, just a little fender bender. Uh, she bumped into this car that was trying to take a turn, and all of a sudden they just stopped and boom. She bumped in. So immediately Amy and the man in the other car got out to inspect the damage, and they couldn't see that there was anything wrong. So they called in the police. They had the police check everything out, and they didn't see anything wrong here. And, hey, nobody's to blame. They just let the drivers go their way because they didn't see any harm done. Yet several days later, Craig said he got a call from the man in the other car saying, you know, there was some minor damage after all, and I need $500 to fix my car. Well, right away, Craig Rochelle says, I was kind of upset, thinking, is this guy playing me? Is he trying to take advantage of me? I mean, even the police didn't file a report because they didn't see that any damage had been done. So really, I wasn't under any obligation to help this guy out. And besides, at that moment in my life, I didn't have $500. 500 bucks? That's what he was thinking to himself. But Craig said, as I sat there contemplating this, the more I thought about it, I began to realize, but I'm a Christian. I'm here to represent Jesus. And maybe this is an opportunity to help. So he talked to the man a little more, and he ended up, paying him the money. 17 years later, Craig and Amy are walking out of the church building on Sunday morning when this young lady approaches them said, hey, I want to introduce myself. Amy, I was six years old when you accidentally hit our car, and my dad needed some money to help fix the car, and you not only gave us the money, but it was the way you gave us the money. With such kindness, such thoughtfulness, it touched every one of our hearts. So several years later, when we as a family begin to realize, you know, we really need to start going to church, we decided to come to your church. And it has been a life-changing experience for us. I just wanted to say thank you. See, you never know how, because you choose to do good things today, how God will use those good things to help change somebody else's life in the future. It's your willingness to serve. It's your willingness to always do what is right. It is your willingness to do something good, no matter how small, mundane, or insignificant. But it's just that willingness to do something good that God will begin to use to unpack your suitcase and draw out the potential that he put inside your life and mine and put you in a place where now you can impact the world around you. Let's pray. God, our life is a gift, something you've given to us. It's a very 
precious gift. May we never take it for granted. And today, God, my prayer is this for every one of us here. May we begin to understand and really appreciate what you have given to us. The talents, the skills, the opportunities to help and do good for others. God, every day, help us to see the opportunities, the doors that you open so that we can serve. And when every one of those moments arrives, God, help us, give us the wisdom and the strength to make the most of that moment. So that, Lord, you can begin to unpack the suitcase and draw out the potential that you put inside each and every one of us. God, we want you to be glorified by the way we live our lives. And it's for your glory that we pray. Amen.